Okay, it's 101 and we have critical mass, or at least it's 101 on the East Coast. We have critical mass. Rachel, you ready? We're ready to go. Uh, welcome everyone to the narrative initiative uh, session on our block and build narrative organizing against white nationalism. I am just going to introduce narrative initiative and the two of us quickly, and then uh, we'll, we'll take a look at what we're doing today. Let's go to the next slide, Rachel. So uh, I'm Rinku Sen, I'm the executive director of Narrative Initiative. I'll talk about what we do in a minute. And I'll be joined today by Rachel Weidinger, who is our program director. Uh, I'm in Texas, Rachel is in California. And what we aim to do with you today is first to lay out some narrative definitions and broad frameworks concepts that uh, we rely on a lot in our work and that we think you might find useful. We're gonna talk a little bit about our approach of narrative organizing and what that is, its activities, its goals, uh, how to measure it. And then we'll move into describing uh, the specific project that we have been developing with a number of partners to bring the struggle against white nationalism and for a multiracial democracy closer to everyday people and to communities. Uh, and we'll spend a few minutes on what's next, uh, what might be next for you as you are learning about narrative shift strategies and some of what's next for us in our um, organizing in our narrative organizing. So uh, let's go to the next slide, Rachel. At Narrative Initiative, we do three things. Uh, first is that we are building and weaving together the various members of and participants of a large network that is of people who are all aiming to grow the narrative power of everyday people. We, uh, in addition to having that network, we equip that network with the tools and insights that practitioners need to actually do their work with excellence and successfully. And then finally, we are focused together uh, as, a, as a staff and organization on narratives that create connections between human beings that strengthen community ties, both within a community and across communities so that we can make long-term progress together. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, these are some of the ways that we see our ecosystem. Uh, as you'll see uh, in our presentation, we think of narrative as the result of both action and storytelling. So what you do, as well as what you say about what you do. And that means there are, that, that uh, the work of making narrative shifts is multidisciplinary work. So on this slide, you can see that we are, um, you know, within our network of practitioners, we include researchers, content creators of different kinds from uh, culture shift strategists to journalists. We certainly include philanthropists who are thinking about uh, how to change the big stories of our society and how to support their grantees in doing that 
policy makers, uh, scholars of narrative, and of course, uh, organizers and communicators. So um, we would love to know from your uh, contexts and your foundations if, if there are particular ones of these disciplines that, that include you and describe you. Rachel might have put a prompt into the chat. But if you identify with or organize with one of these uh, or multiple of these groups of people of these beings, uh, please share so that we can uh, we can see what the breadth of experience and expertise is that we are all bringing to the work. Seeing some of those coming in, research, communications, culture shift, more comms. We love comms. Rachel and I are both comms people, uh, as well as both organizers. So happy to see these and um, and hoping that we can have fruitful back and forth in the Q&A and uh, feel free to share resources in the chat with each other. Okay, I'm going to turn it over to Rachel now to share some of the definitions and concepts that guide our work. Great, thanks, Renku. All right, um, I get to talk to you about what is narrative. And we have some, we're going to start from a pretty heady space, but we're going to move really quickly into practical stuff. So hang out with us in the ether for a minute. Um, we talk about narratives being themes, ideas, and morals that permeate collections or systems of related stories. They don't always have a standard structure, but instead they're articulated and refined repeatedly as they're instantiated in a variety of stories and messages. They're held in lots of different ways. And deep narratives um, we talk about as being characterized per by pervasiveness and intractability. They provide a foundational framework for understanding both our past and what's going on right now. And they inform our basic concepts, um, who we are, community, belonging. Sometimes I think about deep narratives as being um, the way that we orient um, to the relationship between ourselves and other people, ourselves and the planet, ourselves and ecosystems. And that's what we mean by deep narrative. And um, because we've done lots of thinking and talking about this, I'm going to share a couple links with you in the chat. If you want to go deeper on this, don't worry, we have ways for you to go deeper. And stories are a big and important part of narrative. Um, I'm going to get real visceral here and talk about why stories matter. Um, we know that human beings are hardwired for stories. It's how we learn, it's how we think. Um, we know that stories have a familiar structure um, and we can really relate to them. Her story is just like mine. We can see familiar elements in other stories. Um, and then there's an even deeper level to bring us into our bodies for a minute. Engagement in a story is oftentimes involuntary. There's a somatic component. Um, when a person is really immersed in a story, their body has reactions that the protagonist is having. Um, there's a physiological impact. Um, and when the body is involved, we start to hold that information differently. And one silly example here is that I have a very clear memory of watching one of the Jurassic Park movies in a movie theater. 
there was a part where the kids were trying to get away from a velociraptor and they're like in a ceiling above some ceiling tiles and the velociraptor lunges for the kids. And I remember that I pulled my legs all the way up into that seat. And I watched this movie when I was not a child. I was fully an adult. I had graduated from college, uh, but I was very convinced somatically that that velociraptor was an actual threat to my body. Um, that's one of the ways that stories matter. And um, to understand the relationship between messages and stories, between narratives, values and worldviews, um, we use this thing we call the waves model. Um, so deep undercurrents in the ocean, um, things that shape us, but we can't always see or touch access directly, our values and worldviews, those really underpin um, and are the foundation of narratives and deep narratives. And that's the kind of middle layer um, that exists between a, a single message or a, a single news story um, and a worldview. Um, the narratives undergird um, the messages and stories. And messages and stories are concrete, they're experienced, they're changing all the time. They're that choppy um, top of the ocean that we can see. You can look out from the beach and see like, it's a, it's a smooth day, it's a calm day, or the ocean's really choppy. And you can do that for the news cycle as well. And then the narrative has a logic and meaning behind the stories, the deep, um, deeper, deeper, um, the values and the worldview. And I'll pass to Rinku um, to talk through some sp specifics of that abstract thing I was just talking about. Thank you, Rachel. We thought it would be good to show you an example of how these uh, this wave analysis worked out in real life. So I used to run the organization Race Forward. I was the executive director for about uh, 10, 11 years. And one of the things we did during that time was run the Drop the I Word campaign, which had the goal of getting the Associated Press to take the phrase illegal immigrant and its uh, various permutations out of their style guide, which is widely used by, by outlets all over the world really to set their vocabulary and lexicon. So you can see here, we've contrasted the, the harmful narrative elements of, um, of immigration conservatives' insistence on using the I word uh, contrasted with our, our wave strategy. So you can see that the value that the uh, that immigration restrictionists really hammered on was law and order, has been law and order. Um, they did that because their polling showed them that around 2000, 2001, immigration was not something that Americans were actually super concerned about. They, they didn't really think there had been, um, there was much of a problem, but they were, and particularly after 9-11, very much concerned about um, law and order and legality. So the, the essential themes, the narratives that restrictionists used were all about breaking the law, people breaking the law, and their solution and the stories they built around their message was that everybody had to use only the I word. If they didn't, they were lying. In contrast to the law and order values, we tried to raise up the value of human dignity. Uh, 
you'll remember that the context for this campaign was journalism. We were trying to get a major journalistic outlet to change its practice. So uh, the human dignity value really spoke to the fact that every person deserves to be represented truly and authentically and in the actual context of, um, of that their actions, that they took their actions in or lived their life in. And that uh, we were able to prove through our narrative work on themes that there was a ton of racial bias in the use of the I word. And then our solution was to drop it and use alternatives instead. And we've listed out some of the alternatives that um, have been used and that we, uh, we, had, we had an answer to the question of what do you want us to do instead? That's very important in your solution space. So, um, and then these were the results of the campaign. We won in April, 2013. The Associated Press changed their style guide and uh, so did other outlets that didn't use their style guide like the LA Times and USA Today. Let's do the next slide, Rachel. Thanks. So this is just a quick uh, view of what happened to usage of the I word right after we won our campaign. Uh, let's keep going. Thanks, Riku. All right, um, coming back again into the more heady space. Um, when we um, at Narrative Initiative came together and started doing work um, back in 2018, there were a lot of different lineages, a lot of different ways of practicing narrative change. Um, and we think that's good. That's actually a strength. Um, but we wanted a way to compare notes um, and to make plans together, even though we were coming from lots of different kinds of backgrounds. Um, so we came up with this model um, that we call the four baskets. And we think of the four baskets as being necessary capacities for narrative change. You gotta find some way um, to fill each one of these baskets with a capacity, um, and then you'll be able to be successful. And a documentary filmmaker is gonna change the, fill these baskets differently than someone who does direct action or someone who does digital organizing. Um, there's lots of ways to fill these baskets. And we start with the observe together basket. Um, Want to understand the narrative landscape, um, the narrative capacity, not just at your own organization, but across the broader landscape um, and get ready um, to pay attention to the landscape together and enrich your understanding. Once you know the landscape, um, you can move into creating the new narrative. It's really hard to do narrative change unless you have a narrative that you're shifting to, <laughs> to be very basic about it. Um, and the idea here um, is that there's an essential creative act in generating the narrative that you're shifting to. You might undertake this um, through a process that we use, like building a shared narrative North Star, a shared point of narrative orientation together. Once you've got the landscape down, you've observed it, you've created the narrative that you're shifting to, um, then there's a basket, a phase that we call translate. Um, sometimes when I'm being extra nerdy about this, I call this one refract, like it's a, a light shining through a crystal and you can see it um, shining out across the world. The translate um, 
capacity might be very direct. It might be about um, translating something from Spanish into English, for example. But more commonly, it's really about um, making sure that that narrative can be held in many voices and understood by many communities. Um, so there's some effort to that. Um, it can be tricky, but it's a really important step to not skip. And then once you've done, you've observed the landscape, um, you've created the, the narrative, you've done the translation work, then you're ready to deploy. And I think of deploy as the easy basket because <laughs> um, it's one of the most professionalized ones. You can probably get a degree in how to get your um, narrative out in the world. Um, you could probably get 20 different kinds of graduate degrees in different disciplines. Strategic comms gives us lots of tools for this. Um, and it's oftentimes a place that um, it's a bit easier and people magnet to starting there because it's more easy to conceptualize and plan. Um, we have deeper tools in that area, um, but you really only wanna be deploying a narrative in the world once you've already filled these other baskets um, and gotten to that point. And we think of this as a, um, a circular pattern. Um, once you've deployed, you wanna go back to observing and seeing how that um, narrative is rolling out in the world. That's the four baskets model. And um, now we have some time for Q&A. Um, so we'll turn to um, what you've already shared in the Q&A. We see one question in here from Lisa. Yeah, there's- Are we missing uh, any questions? I'm happy to read this question out. And then there's a, there's a point I wanna make as follow-up, even if there's no question about it. Um, so Lisa's question, thank you for it, is, in the WAVES model, are values and worldview analogous to frames or mental models? Um, and uh, my answer is yes, but they may also show up in frames and mental models may also show up in the narrative wave, uh, in the middle wave. So, um, I think the way to think about those two waves, which is analogous to frames and mental models, is that you're constantly trying to take layers off of the discourse and get to deeper levels of values. So, um, for example, if, if a mental model is small government is best, um, that might actually fall in the narratives wave, in the narrative wave. And the reason that people think small government is best would go in the, um, in the, I've forgotten my own waves uh, analogy, would go in the values and worldviews um, wave. So yeah, and I'm gonna suggest that it actually isn't important to be super precise about where you put the different words and concepts that you're working with. Uh, the thing to remember is that you always wanna be dealing at the level of values and as deep as possible values uh, that, are, that sit as deeply as possible in the people that you're trying to reach and the audience you're trying to reach. And you always wanna work on messages and stories kind of last once you've been gotten really clear about the themes and values that you want to push out. Um, we have a couple more questions. How did we choose human dignity as the value for the um, campaign? 
Um, so we needed a value or a frame that was big enough for us to be able to speak with a lot of different audiences and raise different themes. So um, if, if we had gone with a value of journalistic accuracy, for example, that wouldn't have given us a broad enough umbrella for all of the people that we wanted to engage and have participate in the campaign. Um, and, and we wanted to assert the rights of the people being reported on <laughs> to the most important part of their rights. And as we, as we talk to people and observe together, the most the critical affront to their rights uh, really turned out to be about the stripping of, of everything from them, from their image and from their uh, character, except for their immigration status. Um, okay, next question. And Rachel, I'm gonna send this to you. A lot of time in organizing and movement work, news can be inundating, there's just too much of it. How do you reshape, revamp, refresh the narrative to counter news fatigue? Um, let's, we have lots of questions, so that's great. So <laughs> do. why don't you take um, that one, Rachel, while I do a little sorting? Sure. Um, and we only have about one minute left for Q&A. Um, mm -hmm. But I can start to take on this um, news cycle one. So I think there's um, at least two important com components to thinking about how to do what's really long-term narrative work in a very intense news cycle. Um, and I kind of break this down um, in my work into managing your team um, and uh, what you're kicking out into the world and how you're supporting that. So I'll take the last one first, which is um, a really good reason to have a narrative North Star um, and to have a shared collective orientation on your narrative work is that you know you're gonna have to cross a lot of terrain together um, in that hairy news cycle and you need a way to stay oriented um, even when it feels like there's a comms crisis piled on a comms crisis piled on a rapid response campaign, you need a shared way to stay oriented. Um, and that's also a very important internal um, management tool to be able um, to show success or failure in individual moments uh, against that longer term um, shared narrative orientation of something like a narrative North Star. Um, so that's the beginning of an answer, but this is probably like a day long conversation. Um, did you find any uh, quick questions, Rinku, that we could answer? No, we I didn't, <laughs> um, but I found a number of questions that we, I think are going to address in through the block and build examples. So, um, so I'm gonna, I, I wrote some of them down and I'm gonna do my best to, um, uh, to respond to some of the questions that are in here. And if you asked a question and you feel like it, I do answer it, maybe um, you can uh, indicate that, let us know. But we love all these questions, very thoughtful questions coming in. So um, we are, um, our general approach is to, uh, I'm so sorry, Rachel, I'm doing organizing, right? Yes, okay. We take an organizing approach to anything because we are organizers and we believe in 
uh, the power of people getting together to do a thing. And so we try to approach uh, everything we do, including narrative creation, uh, landscaping creation and distribution uh, through, through an organizing lens. Let's keep going. So narrative organizing is basically collective power building in the narrative space and on narrative questions. Next slide. And some of the things that we do through the organizing um, activities are, one is to create a shared landscape. It's hard to decide together what the intervention should be if you're not actually looking at the same landscape of different narrative threads, how they're appearing, how people, how they're getting in front of people, who the players are. So uh, we essentially won't work on a project where landscaping isn't in the plan or hasn't been done. We don't always have to do it, but we do uh, need it to be happening. Um, the second part of organizing is to align around the new narratives that we want to push out. Uh, and new is not always the right word. Sometimes they're old narratives that, that we can um, insert more, uh, insert into the culture and the populace with more saturation. And then, so we wanna align on what that actual story is that we want to be telling, what are the themes and values we want to be pushing and then shared action. What do, what, how are we actually gonna do this together? Let's go to the next slide. And uh, moving a narrative shift requires what we call polyvocal communications. You want the same themes and values and even some of the same stories uh, told by so many different voices that a person basically can't turn around without hearing some version of it, either coming out of their friend's mouth while they're at the bar having a drink. You know, I think people are doing that again, um, outdoors, hopefully. And um, you can't turn on the TV without seeing a show about that set of ideas and those themes. Polyvocal means that everybody, as many different kinds of people are talking about this thing and talking about it in certain ways as possible. So that's what we're always aiming for ultimately um, in a narrative organizing strategy. And it means partly you, you wanna be thinking about whose voices are those that we need to build power with and um, assert in stronger and stronger ways, more powerful ways. All right, um, let's go to the next slide. Uh, and this is a reminder to keep putting your questions in. So I'm gonna take you through the block and build example and try to answer some of the questions that have come up about how you do some of these different parts. So this is a project that we have developed with about 10 other organizations. And the origin story of this project is that about three 
Uh, about three weeks after January 6th, a group of friends, of which I was one, who had long organizing histories and some direct history with fighting, far-right organizing, militia activity, um, political activity, vigilanteism through the 80s, 90s, and aughts, we started meeting every other Saturday just to talk about the situation. I, I wonder, feels like in this group, a lot of us might've been in conversations like that. So we began to observe together the, uh, the narrative landscape. What are people saying about January 6th? What do we call that? Should we be calling it domestic terrorism? Should we not? Because domestic terrorism frames will land back on communities of color in a very bad way. Um, what are the solutions being pushed out for this kind of uh, right-wing violence? And what can we do, those of us who are on these Zooms every other Saturday, what can we do to contribute to changing the situation? And what we decided was that, uh, well, as we talked over the months and shared information, shared ideas, we wound up with a common goal, which was to bring a coordinated struggle against white nationalism and for an expanded multiracial democracy closer to actual communities and people. Um, right now, most of the discussion and narrative shaping and sense-making around January 6th and ongoing far-right uh, violence it takes place in legal arenas, journalism, and in politics, but it does not necessarily take place in the larger culture. It's not taking place in, you know, congregations and worship spaces, congregations, mosques. Um, it's not taking place in social spaces like restaurants, concerts, bars. Um, and it isn't, there isn't an on-ramp for your average a U.S. resident to do anything to help solve this problem and build our democracy. So block and build refers to the frame that we created. Uh, it's about blocking immediate threats, but turning most of our attention to building on ramps to multiracial pluralistic democracy. Let's go to the next slide. Um, Ultimately, we want to see the, the movements and the everyday people that they organize spending most of our time actually on building, but we do recognize that we can't just let the immediate threats go unanswered. So um, in our four baskets scenario, we are currently kind of at the top of observing together. And the way we observed together was Narrative Initiative agreed to take on the role of narrative organizer for this, what eventually became an alliance of about 10 organizations. Our first consultations were with those organizations and they include groups like Political Research Associates, the VAD Group, which is a consultancy, works on many, many social justice systems, questions, 
Change Lab, which is uh, also a consultancy led by two Asian American leaders, um, United Vision Idaho, whose work I'll talk more about later, but there are People's Action Affiliate in the state of Idaho, Women's March, uh, several other groups. So those were our first uh, consultative partners and we built a lot of the landscape ideas with them. The second thing we did a ton of was basically content review. We scoured Twitter for what people were saying about January 6th at different months um, and as the investigations and uh, congressional investigation and law enforcement investigations have continued. We um, looked for all of the organizing in local democracy good news stories that we could find. So tons of content analysis and making sense of that content. And then finally, we've done some interviews with other people related to all of this work who were not in, in our initial group of partners. Um, so that's where we're at in the system and that's how we've handled observing together. Uh, let's go to the next slide. So I'm gonna show you now our um, analysis of narrative threads around white nationalism. So the first thing to look at is of course the white nationalist narrative itself. Um, it relies heavily on values indicated by bootstrap stories of individual success. Um, it is theocratic. There's a strong element of, um, uh, spiritual, really religious rhetoric and uh, freedom is a value that they hammer on all of the time. Uh, the big narrative theme is that the US is a white and Christian country. However that happened, that's what it is now. And the messages and solutions are authoritarian. Might is right is, is one way we've thought about describing that. Next slide. I'm gonna show you next what we see as the common narrative against white nationalism or raising awareness about white nationalism. The value that it um, amplifies is usually the rule of law value. How can we allow people to storm the uh, legislature that way, to storm Congress that way. And that, that rule of law value has showed up in stories about um, not just January 6th, but also about armed protests over mask mandates and public health measures uh, and other local events. Uh, far right marches, for example, like Charlottesville. The themes of this common anti-narrative uh, have a lot to do with naming white nationalists as domestic terrorists. And the solutions are heavily law enforcement related, or find them, arrest them, uh, jail them, imprison them. Let's go to the next slide. So this is an example of what we call the fear and panic narrative on white nationalism. And I, I removed the, the tweeter's name on that one. 
sorry, one back, Rachel. I removed the Twitter's name just to avoid distracting any of us uh, in case we follow this person. This is a journalist who has built a pretty big system around, um, around tracking white nationalist activity. And this reads, I've been saying every week since March that there will not be another insurrection in DC. Instead, there will be a thousand mini insurrections all over the country. I've showed it happening and getting worse every day. Why do we always wait until a tragedy happens to wake up? So let's go to the next slide. I just want to do a little analysis of this, of this line of thinking. Um, from a power perspective, because we are about building narrative power, this, this um, kind of talk really, it amounts to a choice between a why aren't you doing something message and a here is something to do message. There wasn't actually anything to do in that last tweet that I just read you. The person didn't say, go join this organization, do these things. They wake up is a very vague um, instruction and it could cover a lot of things. And the tone of this discourse is, is disempowering. It puts the, um, you know, in the tweet I just showed you, the tweeter is the protagonist and the reader is actually the antagonist. The reader is not doing what the protagonist wants done. And that's not, that's not the kind of relationship we want to set up with the people we hope to influence and activate through this, um, through this campaign and project. Let's go to the next slide, Rachel. Okay, so this is um, our wave analysis. The values we want to lift up have to do with um, unity and cooperation and compassion. So together we thrive. All of those words are important. Together is important and it should show up everywhere. And thrive is important and that should show up everywhere. So we know we need to block this uh, bad activity, but really we have to build toward a democracy where together we thrive. The themes are around multiracial democracy and our message and story tactics are gonna be all about producing receipts that show the history of multiracial democratic organizing in this country, much of which has been erased, as well as pointing people toward great examples of current work that they can support or join or replicate. Let's go to the next slide. I'm gonna try to wrap this up pretty quickly so we can spend a few minutes on questions. So we've started making lists of blocking tactics that grow democracy because we don't wanna do blocking tactics that further limit democracy. The problem with the law enforcement set of solutions is that they will in fact end up limiting democracy rather than expanding it. So um, first message here is we are, hoping to be effective in getting people to stop outrage tweeting because we are hugely amplifying um, white nationalist messages and stories and people through our knee-jerk reaction to their shenanigans. Um, we're interested in blocking 
strategies that get white nationalists out of law enforcement, local law enforcement. There are several stories about sheriffs being pushed out, for example, or forced to uh, resign. Uh, I'm putting the Women's March Digital Defenders program here as an example of disrupting disinformation blocking tactics. And sometimes counter protests can be effective in growing democracy, especially if they're combined with community education, like a teach-in or flyering or, um, I don't know, banner drops that, that actually give people new information. Let's keep going. And these are a few examples we like of, um, of building. Uh, I won't talk about them all, but I'll, I'll pick up the United Vision project in the middle. This is a project that United Vision Idaho started to talk with people, mostly in small towns and rural areas in the state, who are vulnerable to far-right recruitment. And over time to study what comes up in those conversations, there's no mobilization here. There's no attempt to convince. The conversations are all about understanding what people are watching or consuming, where they're getting their information and how they feel about things, what hurts. Um, and there's there are researchers digging into the data of 42,000 conversations to uh, figure out what might be effective ways to begin um, recruiting some of those folks to democratic on-ramps. And I don't mean party on-ramps, I mean on-ramps to uh, local democratic action. Um, okay, those are the examples of build. I'm totally out of time, so let's go to the next slide. Um, so I said earlier, we were at the top end of Observe Together. The next part of this process is gonna be prototyping different kinds of content and testing it with different audiences. Next. Okay, um, we have like maybe four minutes for Q&A. Rachel, I'm wondering if there are any um, critical questions for us to answer now. Sure. Um, I really like this question from Sarah Gray. Sarah asks, is it helpful or necessary to define a win from narrative change perspective, like the AP example? Um, what are good practices in doing that? So my answer is yes. You always want to be defining goals that everybody will celebrate when you reach them and um, and progress toward those goals uh, also give you op options for celebration. So I think the biggest thing to note here is that this is depressing work. Like the more time you spend reading about white nationalist activity everywhere, including, for example, the attacks at local school boards around things like critical race theory or trans uh, equity plans for trans students or um, uh, 
Yeah, those are the two big ones going on. Oh, m masking requirements for students and schools. Um, the more time you spend with them, the more you just want to like hide under your covers until it's over. But of course, the only people who can end it are us. <laughs> and so we, uh, be having clearly defined wins, which might be getting an institution to change its practice, but it might also be getting people in a community to talk to each other or to be, do something together or um, to, to learn something together. Those will really help us keep going. All right. Um, and we've got a big, good question from Jesse Landerman. Um, Jesse asks, the values and the main counter narrative against white nationalism, the, the value of the rule of law seems likely se selected because it resonates with white nationalist sympathizers. Can you comment on strategically advancing a value that would likely be sympathetic to opposition versus the drawbacks of that choice? Yeah, um, I think that the value of rule of law, I, I may disagree with you just slightly um, or we, we may have different impressions of sympathizers, but I think the rule of law uh, value is pushed out a lot in this debate because um, liberals believe in it as well as conservatives. And are those liberals and conservatives sympathetic to some white nationalist ideas? Maybe, probably. Um, uh, I think that the, the, the limiting factor in it could be that, I mean, rule of law is used against protesters all the time, progressive po protesters, labor, uh, labor, labor organized, uh, labor activists and climate activists and immigration activists. So um, I don't love it as the primary value on white nationalism because I think, in fact, not that many people share it as a value, not enough people share it as a value to make it super useful to us in some way. So um, and I think we need to be getting underneath the rule of law value. Like, why do people value that? It's because they value peace. What are other ways to get to peace and be talking about peaceful communities and what actually generates peace? So that's a bit of stream of consciousness thinking about your very important question. Thanks, Nico. Um, and I'm gonna push us a little bit. I think we have time to at least start on one more question before we close out. Um, and figure out some next steps. And um, that is a good question from Northwest. Can you discuss strategies to advance new narratives in the face of opposition? I think about the 1619 project and the high level pushback. What have you found is most effective? Well, I think that what's been effective in, in the specific case of the 1619 project has been the, um, the enormous defense that people have, um, have participated in on accurate historic education, accurate history education. And um, so 
a couple of things I will say is that when we are dealing with backlash, we have to be really careful not to repeat the backlash messages in refuting them. And uh, that's part of the reason we are on the no outreach tweeting bus because um, we don't wanna repeat messages that contradict ours. So the key thing I think is to think, think about what is the value asserted by something like the 1619 project and keep thinking of ways to assert that value without um, setting yourself up in the trap of um, those people are lying. This is our true value. Like just skip the those people are lying part that that will help and and think about how to deliver receipts on your value to the audiences that you need to reach. Hope that's helpful. Great, thanks. And there are so many good questions um, that we're not gonna have time to get to today. Um, we'll see if we can find some, some way um, to give you more resources and answer more of your good questions. Um, we'll, we'll plot about that. Um, so let's talk about what ne what's next. Go ahead, Rinku. Okay, so um, if you want to learn more about narrative, I really, really encourage you to uh, go on our website, sign up for our email list. We do a monthly newsletter that collects up all of the, that curates narrative action that is happening right now, looks at reports, um, turns you on to good people who are thinking about narrative strategy. So please peruse our website, sign up on our list. On our list. Um, if you have information that you think would be helpful for us to know uh, as we develop the block and build strategy, maybe you know of great local uh, democratic, local organizing, mutual aid, community education stories that we'd like to hear about. Uh, maybe you know about effective blocking tactics. Maybe you know about ineffective blocking tactics. Uh, we are, we're going to be landscaping throughout. So the more we know about what you are paying attention to and what your grantees and colleagues are paying attention to and intrigued with or scared of, that, that would be really helpful. And maybe, Rachel, we can throw our emails into the chat for people to be able to be in touch with us down the line, uh, whether it's to answer questions that we didn't get to answer or, um, or uh, to take your input. Cindy asked a question about funding and I can't seem to answer it in the Q&A. So um, we're, we're self-funding through general, general support right now and looking for project funding. Seemed important to say that at least. I'm talking to you on mute, sorry. Um, so I uh, put a few resources and ways to reach us in the chat. Um, we've got lots of stuff in our library and we're always building it. If you know of resources that should be added, um, we'd love for you to help us build out the map of our block and build. So email us. Um, and your feedback on this is really helpful. Um, and that's the end of our presentation, but it's really only the beginning of the block and build work. 
Um, so we hope that you'll find some kind of a way to join us on this. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.